0: We can choose a, a, a low-value, low-ball, cheap food system. Uh, we've done that for many generations in this country. Um, how do you go about uh, choosing something different? Um, we're lucky enough to have a, a core group of people in the Twin Cities that, 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 that help uh, lay that foundation upon which we can build, hopefully something that's uh, even more accessible, more broadly available, and uh, broadly accepted in the community. But that's a big, big challenge.
1: Welcome. Bienvenidos. Welcome to Nourish by MN350, the podcast that features visionary leaders who are creating the regenerative, inclusive, local food economy we need to meet the challenge of climate change. and welcome to Nourish by MN350. I'm your host, Eli Crane, and we are coming to you from the original homeland of the Dakota and Anishinaabe peoples, or what is now known as Minnesota. Today, we're talking to Josh Resnick, the CEO of Twin Cities Co-op Partners, which includes the Wedge and Linden Hills Co-op, as well as the distributor Co-op Partners Warehouse. These businesses bring over four decades of experience connecting people and local growers, suppliers, farmers, and producers throughout Minnesota and the upper Midwest. We are also joined by Jack Hedin, the founder of Featherstone Farm in Rushford, Minnesota. Featherstone Farm is a 250 acre certified organic farm that since 1994 produces around 70 varieties of fresh market fruits and vegetables for local co-ops, restaurants and grocers, wholesalers and community supported agriculture members throughout the region. We are talking to them today to get their perspectives on how local food can help create a more just and resilient food system. Welcome and thank you both so much for being here for this conversation.
0: Thanks for having us. Thank you.
1: We're so happy to have you here. Um, So to start off this conversation, I would love to hear about your backgrounds and what led you to want to work in the food system. So Josh, uh, would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself and your career?
2: Sure. Well, my name is Josh Resnick. I'm the CEO of Twin Cities Co-op Partners. Um, I've been with the organization for just about eight years. Actually, t- I think tomorrow is my eight year anniversary. So, and, you know, I've worked in the food industry for about 25 years, always have been passionate about the local food economy and how food is, food is produced. I think a lot of my passion for the local food system, you know, came, came partly from a passion for food. I grew up in a f- kind of a foodie family where we really enjoyed cooking. We enjoyed finding like hole-in-the-wall ethnic restaurants, and food was always kind of part of our conversation. Um, And as I got kind of more into kind of cooking and sourcing food myself, um, I would say the kind of shopping for food became part of the fun of it and part of the hunt. And so got really into shopping at The Wedge well before I worked there, Um, got very into going to the farmers markets in Minneapolis and getting to know the farmers and kind of building relationships with them. And it was kind of my thing, like I would go like every single week and just, you know, have conversations and kind of be able to talk with them about the food and like what was good and what was freshest at that time and just share ideas with them and learn a little bit more about what they were doing. So it really, you know, my my coming to the wedge comes from a you know, great respect for the local food system. You know, my background is I, I worked at General Mills uh, for about 13 and a half years. Kind of my day job was was marketing. Things like yogurt in a tube and microwavable dessert balls and stuff that I didn't really eat. I mean, and I I believed, you know, General Mills is a good company. and I think they do a lot of really good things. But really, my passion was in this local food system. And I got on the board for uh, Midtown Global Market, which helped immigrant business owners um, kind of set up food businesses over in, in the East Phillips neighborhood As I mentioned, you know, kind of, you know, really kind of tied in with the farmer's markets. I ended up getting on the board for Midtown Global, not Midtown Global Market, but Mill City Farmer's Market as well. I I spent two years kind of after General Mills running a grass-fed bison company, which was all about kind of restoring the great Plains and very much about um, the the, the land their whole life. So they actually were field harvested. It was 100% grass-fed. And that was kind of my bridge between General Mills and working at the Wedge. Um, came to The Wedge in 2012 and had always really had a passion for The Wedge and shopped at The Wedge and kind of, you know, I, I joked that it was kind of my dream job coming in and it really has been a fantastic experience working here and being part of the local food community and helping, you know, further that and kind of connecting farmers like Jack with people here who have a passion for and appreciation for how their, how their food is grown and raised.
1: Wow, Great. Thank you so much for sharing. You've really had a, a career that spanned kind of all aspects of the food system. I'm really excited to get to dig in more um, with questions for you. I will move on though quick to, to Jack. I would love to hear a little bit more about the founding of Featherstone Farm and your decision to work in the food system and to become a farmer specifically.
0: Sure. Um, I did not grow up in agriculture. I did not grow up in rural America. I grew up in suburbia went to college during the Reagan era where I uh, was involved. It was very political. It was the uh, 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 apartheid era, anti-apartheid era, contra war. I was involved in a lot of campus activism and opposition to things, marches for uh, submarine launch, nuclear submarine launches and that kind of a thing. And um, at some point I realized that I wanted to do something constructive, and life-affirming as opposed to just opposing things and uh, marching and uh, trying to beat back the tide. And um, I was uh, always been a great in out of doors and uh, very involved in um, food as well from a family that uh, did a lot of cooking. And so uh, somehow or another agriculture came up and was the natural answer for me. Um, I really have enjoyed working with my hands my whole life, uh, carpentry projects, building Um, things of that sort, and being able to translate ideas into action with my hands, as well as uh, at a computer keyboard or any other type of thing, that has been really a, um, you know, it's turned into, it's a real vocation for me at this point. I just can't imagine doing anything else. Uh, We started out, my wife and I, very, very small. Well, we started by working on farms uh, across the country for many years, New England, Mid-Atlantic, California, at some point um, we decided to come back to Minnesota where my father's family's roots are right here in Red Wing area. My great-grandfather was a, a Swedish immigrant who uh, grew up uh, just Featherstone Township outside of Red Wing, uh, which is the name of our namesake for our farm. Uh, did a lot of things in his life, but he was a an early ecologist and proto-environmentalist in the turn of the century before that kind of thing was widely understood. He was probably 20 years ahead of Aldo Leopold, wrote a memoir, self-published memoir that I got my hands on when I was an idealistic college kid and started reading about. And uh, this was the thing, um, that his writing more than anything that made me really start to wonder whether we could I could go back to the roots at some fundamental level and uh, build a a kind of a regenerative agriculture that he would have understood uh, in an era before um, the the chemical era and the monocultures and the modern systems came into place. And uh, so it's extremely idealistic, I guess that's the important thing here. Uh, Got into it with this extreme uh, high level of idealism, uh, environmental and um, systems change had been involved in cooperatives, land cooperatives and housing cooperatives. Um, for many years before we started selling to the co-ops like the wedge or co-op partners in the Twin Cities. Um, that was a you know again, foundation level thing for my wife and for myself for many years. We were founding members of a land cooperative um, in 1994 uh, about eight miles from here, Southeast Minnesota. Kind of outgrew it was poor soil not a good location for a farm but uh we it was a wonderful thing when it lasted for 15 years 20 years we were members out there anyway uh featherstone farm was just in the right place at the right time and uh, from a um, humble beginnings with um, five rented acres i think at the land cooperative uh, early on a couple of um, volunteers helping us out a couple of employees early on we grew 10%, 15% a year for a couple of decades. And uh, uh, a lot of uh, downside to that, but it did get us to where we are here now at this point, which is um, a fairly stable, well-established vegetable farm that is really able to put a lot of its uh, ideals into practice. I'm I'm very pleased to say, um, we've managed to do a lot of the pull pull off a lot of the growth without sacrificing a lot of those original ideals Uh, Although it was touch and go for a while, we invested so much and stretched ourselves out so much in the wake of flooding 2007 with uh, green energy, solar panels, and uh, geothermal here on our new site. Here, uh, nearly put us out of business. I'll be honest, trying to you know uh, do everything at once with uh, with uh, green energy and, uh, and on climate. I did a I spent two three years of of really uh, active advocacy. Uh, nationally on climate and um, really took my eyes off of the farm and, and uh, created a lot of problems here that, again, nearly put us out of business again uh, six, eight years ago. And we managed to keep alive, however, thanks to these wonderful collaborations with places like uh, Co-op Partners, uh, the Food Co-ops in the Twin Cities, our CSA membership. We have managed to keep the lights on and uh, now hopefully finding a little bit more of a balance between the, the real idealism that got us into it and the uh, realities of just keeping a business like this running day in and day out, trying to navigate the big challenges, uh, one of which is climate change in uh, what we do, fresh vegetables, fresh market vegetables, uh, disrupted climate is the challenge number one. I'm certain of that, and we can talk about the, exactly what that means, but it um, is it is um, it is the it is an existential threat to what we do. Um, I just might add, though, I think that um, from writing and thinking about this for, two decades, what we do with uh, fresh market vegetable production in a four season climate east of the Rocky Mountains, this is in some ways to me, the perfect canary in the coal mine for climate disruption, because what we do is so seamlessly and vitally connected with um, these micro swings and these trends and the, the stability of weather. Um, year in, day in and day out, week in and week out, year in and year out. Um, When those patterns are disrupted, um, either acutely or chronically over a period of time, we, uh, we really feel it. And um, that's been our experience for 25 years here in, in uh, Southeast Minnesota at Featherstone farm is seeing that the stability, the predictability uh, slipping away from us. And, um, suffering the consequences in mighty ways that we can talk about but uh, it is challenge number 1 for us.
1: Yeah, I think that's such an important point when talking about, you know, why it is important to think about food as part of a climate solution and also an indicator of of how we're doing as a as a climate as a country and and see the trends as they change. I would love to touch really briefly on the ideals that you talked about for your farm because I think that's important for for framing um, this whole conversation. So just maybe just list out a couple of what you uh, referred to as the the ideals that you were able to stick through through those kind of hard times.
0: So I think ideal number one is is one of these things that I think I, that I took from my great grandfather's memoir, which is the idea of some kind of agriculture which is fundamentally in sync with natural cycles and uh, natural order of things in the particular area where it takes place in this in this area, Southeast Minnesota not trying to push back too hard against um, uh, the the, the seasonal and uh, all the fluctuations the landscape and other things you know something that's in you know the ideal of being in harmony with uh, a natural order of things that is number one Um, and that's not easy to do because um, vegetable farming at any scale and certainly at the scale we are where we're supplying pallets and pallets and pallets of produce for a place like co-op partners it's, it's inherently a very disruptive thing. And so finding that balance between, say, tillage and soil health, uh, that's a tough one. And it's a big challenge for us. Uh, but I, again, so I think number one, idealism is uh, uh, inspiration and direction from the natural order of things in the environment. Number two, I think, would be um, uh, some kind of a sustainable community that's in balance, a community of people, uh, producers. Um, our nearby community, neighbors, uh, other farmers in our area, conventional as well as organic, certainly the community of consumers and uh, the food shed, uh, including places like uh, co-op partners and uh, Twin Cities in general, that, that balance and a healthy, uh, re- mutually supportive relationship there to me is a really fundamental ideal uh, that I'm working on. I think cooperatives are and, and things like community supported agriculture are really uh, good vehicles for that. I mean, putting that ideal into effect. Um, and I think also in, uh, trying to elevate farm work. I think another a- a ideal for me is elevating, you know, hand, the, the work of the hands and the day-to-day work of producing and harvesting and uh, shipping produced, elevating that to be a more honorable and uh, important, essential type of work, uh, not just a pandemic, but uh, all the time, that farm work itself is a valuable and uh, honorable uh, thing and that, uh, that more people could aspire to do it. That's, that's also a, a big idealistic thing because uh, fewer and fewer and fewer people farming now and uh, for good reasons and bad reasons, that's, 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 uh, it's slipping away from
1: us. Awesome, yeah, thank you so much for sharing that. Those three things, respecting the boundaries of nature, supporting your local community's food needs and respecting the people who grow and harvest that food, are fundamental tenets of the food system MN350's food team hopes to support, and why we wanted to highlight what you're doing at Featherstone Farm, and also highlight the work that Josh and the co, and co- partners are doing to support you guys and a larger community of the Twin Cities area um, and beyond. So I'll just let Josh speak for a little bit about what Co-op Partners sees as its role in creating a more resilient and sustainable local food system.
2: Sure thing. I, you know, I really like to think of it as a conduit between small to mid-sized growers and consumers kind of across the upper Midwest. So we've got, within Twin Cities Co-op Partners, um, we've got four different parts of our business. We've got two stores, uh, which are Wedge and London Hills Co-op Um, we've got co-op partners warehouse, which is a food distributor. And then we've got kind of our food service wing where we're producing food. We cook food. We have a bakery. We have a catering business. Um, co-op partners warehouse specifically started up in 1999 and we've really grown a lot over the last 20 years. We, we service about 400 different accounts. So a lot of it is co-op groceries and independent grocers, but we also kind of service more, um, kind of sourcing minded restaurants and cafes as well. Also college, you know, there's some colleges that buy from us, universities, schools, but we, we really kind of see our job is to bring together farmers like Jack who are, you know, doing great stuff and the people who ultimately who want the food. And so it's, it's a way of also taking miles off the road. So instead of Jack, you know, going out and delivering to, you know, 50 different sites, we can kind of through one delivery reach our warehouse And then put put it on our truck, along with everything else that we're selling, and reach 400 outlets throughout the upper Midwest. And we actually serve a seven-state area. So we go all the way down to Chicago, the UP in Michigan, Wisconsin, Iowa, Dakotas. Even though, I mean, our business is really concentrated in Minnesota, but we do cover a wider area than that. And, um, you know, I I think, obviously, during the growing season, we work extremely closely with farms like Jack's and Harmony Valley in Wisconsin and other you know, small farms that I think kind of provide the food that I think a lot of us want to be eating, kind of this type of stuff that people would buy if they were going to a farmer's market and we're, that we're bringing that. But then even off offseason, um, we work with farms in California and Arizona and Mexico, and we tend to work with small and mid-sized farms there as well. And so it's it's also providing kind of a year round source for things like, you know, greens and kale and the type of stuff that you just you know it's it's a relatively short growing season here in Minnesota. So we we also kind of believe in eating seasonally, but we know that if we were strictly eating seasonally and just providing stuff seasonally, that it would be pretty narrow in terms of what we be able to buy in the stores. And the other one thing, other thing I'll say, I mean this kind of goes beyond farming, but we also play a pretty important role for local producers of packaged goods. So we've got about 120 different small food companies that we work with. And we're kind of the bridge between when they get too big for delivering out of the back of their van, but they're not quite ready to go to national distributor yet. And we work with them both in terms of giving a broader market so they can get their product to to more outlets and be able to expand their business. But we also provide a lot of services. So kind of helping kind of coach them and instruct them through that growth process. And I think that's really important. So whether we're working with a, a small up and coming, you know, kombucha maker or, you know, an organic farm in Southeastern Minnesota, we really view these people as partners, not, it's, it's it's a really symbiotic relationship. And whether it's kind of with a retail business at the Wedger Linden Hills or a distribution business with CPW, we are partners with Jack and other farms. We are partners with these small producers. Um, having been at a big food company and spent a lot of time, you know, going in and kind of selling to large, large, Retailers, where it's much more of a zero-sum game, and we're kind of arguing over you know every last penny. Our success is rooted in the success of Jack running his farm successfully, and the kombucha farms, you know, not kombucha farms, kombucha producers running successfully, and, and it's a just a very very different mentality. We're much more about collaboration and how do we create a situation where we're mutually winning. Um, and I think that that kind of comes across both in terms of how we. Buy and like you know negotiating you know buying agreements, but also then how we're selling product as well. Um, I think you know if I compare and contrast us to let's just call it a, a large national national foods retailer, I think they're very much about waving their own flag and talking about their their themselves, and we're much more about talking about Featherstone Farm and Harmony Valley and Prohibition Kombucha and producers like that we really feel like we're successful when they're successful. And the thing that we, we can kind of most bring is to tell those stories of the people who are bringing your food and just bring you closer to that. So there's a greater sense of connection.
1: Yeah. I think that's such an important part of making it possible to have a, a local food system where you're not having to source things from only from California or, and you can also be, you know, fostering local businesses and producers and, and keeping that like connection
0: going. Eli, I wonder if I could just interject one thing before while it's fresh on my mind here before we move to this next thing. Absolutely, yeah. I think to many of your listeners, what Josh has just described would seem like a no brainer. Why would there not be a, co- a collaboratively oriented small food hub that does all of these things that brings together and make, connects all these dots? Uh, it does seem at some level like a uh, just uh, like every community is going to have one of these types of uh, uh, food hubs or, or businesses. But in my experience, and in the experience of so many farmers that I know across the country, what we have with co-op partners is truly a unique thing here. I am not kidding. I have friends visit from the West Coast and from uh, Mid Atlantic and and all over, and uh, to a person, they are amazed by the lengths to which co-op partners and the food co-ops here in the Twin Cities walk the walk of doing this work and um, and doing it uh, collaboratively, but also doing it successfully and profitably, which translates into sustainably. Because uh, there are so many efforts like this and new initiatives to, to replicate co-op partners in cities, communities across the country I hear about them, I read about them, I know people that are involved in these things and uh, they are inevitably struggling. Uh, there is some missing element uh, in, in so many of them, not all by a long shot and there are, I don't wanna throw cold water on the, the, the idea, the impulse, but to be able to actually pull it off and to successfully for two decades and, and to be bringing up all of these small farms and small producers that Josh has talked about and serving not just thousands, but tens of thousands of families in a community like the Twin Cities Metro throughout the upper Midwest, this, this co-op partners warehouse and these food co-ops in the, up in the Twin Cities here, the upper Midwest, it is a really unique deal. And we ought to be darn proud of it and happy that we've got it here because uh, there's few other places in the, in the country where this thing is working as well.
2: Well, thank you, Jack. I, you uh, you're like our best uh, marketing resource here, and I, I, I feel like we should be hiring you. You you uh, do a great job of telling the call. Well, I know you
0: you You should be tooting your own horn to some degree, but I can to because I see it from the outside, and I just know how unique it really is. So I just I just want to interject that before I get into the history, the background.
2: Yeah, thank you. That's that's a good good background. And and you've actually you know you've kind of uh, had a longer relationship with Co-Partners Warehouse than I have. So I think you're you're very well equipped to uh, speak about it.
1: Yeah, thank you, Jack. I'm so glad you pointed out how unique the work is that Co-op Partners is doing to authentically support local sustainable producers and makers. As you said, food hubs like these are really lacking, and the connection piece between small producers and consumers is seriously missing all across the country. And I think that's a good segue into talking about how the different Co-ops and Co-op Partners warehouse came to be and how its business model is different from national distributors like Cisco or UNFI and the big chain grocery stores.
2: I would say, you know, just going back a little bit, um, the co-ops, Wedge was started in 1974 and Linden Hills in 1976. Both were pretty similar stories. It really was started by people in those communities, people in the neighborhoods who wanted access to affordable, organic, healthy whole foods, Um, and they kind of came together to start these and they really were, you know, community run. It was the community who worked at these stores at the time, you know, they were run by volunteers and it really was about food access. And the market then was very different. I mean, that was kind of, you know, as food industrialization was really starting to, you know, blow up and grow. And so it was kind of an antidote to that. And, you know, again, a very different time in food retail as well. Um, there was much more standardization. There were a lot fewer sources to go and get, you know, organic, healthier foods, you know, produce, grains, um, and that—that's really what it started out of. Was was out of kind of that passion and that desire. And I, you know, I would say that while well, the stores themselves look and feel very different today, forty-five years later, I, I think it's kind of rooted out of the same ideal, which is we are here to serve our owners. And that's the people who shop at the store. Very, very different business model. Um, so with the food co-ops, you are either you know, an owner and you own one share or you're not and you own zero shares. So it's kind of a binary thing. You're either you're either in and you've got one share and one vote or, or you aren't. Um, unlike you know, some of these big corporate natural food retailers where you might have somebody who has millions of shares lives, you know, thousands of miles away, you know, in a penthouse apartment in New York, we're owned by people who are in the community, who live here, who shop at the store, who are in here and have a vested interest in the business and the success of the business. Um, So it's a a very unique model. It's a much more democratically controlled model. You know, as I said, we've got about 23,000 owners and every single one of them has one vote. So we have board elections each year, they vote for the board and it's not like you can have multiple votes you either have one vote or you have zero votes. Um, and so it's, it's, um, it's a pretty cool model and it is a really good way of creating kind of a more fair, more democratic food system. So that's the history of the retail side. Um, CPW was created in 1999 and really a lot of it, I believe, came from um, a visionary named Edward Brown and he oversaw the produce department at the Wedge. And I think it really started as how do we ensure high quality consistent supply of produce for the wedge and slowly over time, it kind of opened up to other co-ops and then other areas beyond the twin cities and started to kind of go beyond just food retail and selling to restaurants. You know, Lucia was buying from us and Brenda and a lot of the pioneers and kind of the more mindful Healthier eating here in the Twin Cities, and we kind of created connections that way, and that's been carried on by Danny at Common Roots in Minneapolis, and a lot of others. So um, it, it kind of has evolved over time, and I think you know co-op partners has also evolved in terms of you know meeting meeting kind of customer needs. So you know it started out as just produce, and we still a majority of what we saw is produce, but we've gone beyond that, and we distribute dairy for um, Organic Valley, and we distribute uh, for other kind of small local local dairy producers. Um, as I mentioned, you know, we've got about 120 small grocery producers, uh, you know, in the Twin Cities and Upper Midwest we, we distribute for. So it's been kind of an evolutionary model. One of thing things you just kind of mention as well about the co-op model and is the, any profit that, you know, is, is earned by the co-op, um, we're required to give back a certain percent, at least 20% back in patronage. So the people who shop at the stores, The customers who buy from CPW get a certain percentage of the profits back. So it really is about reinvesting the money in the community, which I think is a very, again, unique business model and a unique part of our model. So both both kind of the patronage refunds to the owners, but also we are putting a lot of our money back, reinvesting in local community groups and supporting food justice um, in in the local community, too.
1: Yeah. No, I'm glad that you added that in. (laughs) So... um... I think the next the next piece of this that we want to address is you guys are all you know working towards really important ideals and connecting the community and creating this food system. You know, what are the challenges that you face with sourcing and and growing local and sustainable foods? And I'd love it to just open up um, to you guys to talk about maybe what those challenges are and and how you're trying to address them and you know what changes you hope to see so that there are fewer challenges in the future?
2: One challenge we face, I think, is differentiation you know, in a way, the fact that, you know, organic food is becoming more mainstream, I think it's a positive in certain ways. But I think kind of really telling our story about how what you're buying when you buy organic food at the wedge at Linden Hills through call partners is different than maybe what you buy at some more um, large corporate places. And I I think organic from a farm like, you know, Jack's, you know, a small farm and, and the way they produce is very, very different than some, you know, huge scale farm in California. You know, I think people, other retailers get that there is a desire to support local and a lot of these things have become buzzwords. But how do we show that we're really more authentic and doing it in a way where we're not cutting corners and we are supporting great, you know, small businesses where they're paying good wages and supporting their workers in a positive way? I I think there's been a very extractive, form um, in the food system for too long, where it's like, how do we kind of a race to the bottom to lower, lower, lower the prices? And then the farmers aren't getting their fair share. And you know, the workers, the people who are putting in the labor aren't getting their fair share. And they're kind of cutting out everybody kind of throughout the system. And you know, I, I understand kind of the desire for low price food, but I think we want to think more in terms of how do we provide food at a fair value? we don't want to gouge anybody. We want fair prices, but we want to make sure that the farmer is getting their fair share and their workers are getting their fair share and everybody is paid a wage where they can live and have, you know, including our workers too. And we want to make sure that people can live and have a, have a fair wage kind of throughout the food system. So.
1: Hmm. Yeah. It sounds like it's really difficult to show customers that you are actually living up to the labels that you put on your food, like local or sustainable or especially when big stores bandy around those terms pretty loosely because they can see that customers are looking for those buzzwords, but actually delivering on those promises means that finding a balance between fair wages and accessible prices for the consumer is hard. And so, Jack, I'm just wondering if those are some challenges that you also face in farming and if there's some more uh, additional ones.
0: Sure. Um, I could talk about really, I think there are three sets of challenges that um, I could talk about independently. There are the farm challenges that are often related, that are related to climate and um, and land access. There's the agricultural challenges. There are the challenges associated with being a, um, a, a, a medium-sized farm with a certain amount of vertical integration where we've got uh, Uh, Warehouse storage and warehousing and shipping and labor needs—you know, labor uh, to to pull all that off—that's a separate set of challenges. The third set of challenges very much related to what uh, Josh has talked about, which is uh, uh, market differentiation and the ability to reach customers uh, who, as a part of this general American food system, are 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 really taught and and encouraged to look for low—you know, low budget. uh, lowball pricing and um, kind of uniformity and uh, uh, a universal a- uh, availability as in uh, strawberries 12 months of the year or um, things of that sort so uh, the, the three the three buckets of challenges I guess on the agricultural side uh, the thing for people to understand it's just, uh, just this is the biggest single thing for people to understand is that, The single greatest challenge to growing um, healthy fresh market vegetables is moisture. And so when it rains at any time during the growing season, it causes trouble for what we do. It is a difficult challenge, which is why most of all of the fresh market vegetables in this country are grown in the arid West where they never see rainfall during their growing cycle. This is why all the salad crops move from the Monterey Bay area, uh, 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 Santa Cruz, Salinas area, down to the desert on the Imperial Valley in the winter. It's not that it's too cold. It's that it rains here during the winter. And when it rains here during the summer, um, we suffer losses. Small ones, big ones. It depends on the persistence, uh, the amount of rain, how much it uh, returns in a growing season rainfall is the enemy of healthy fresh market vegetables. And uh, what we see with disrupted climate, what I've seen in just merely 25 years of growing vegetables here, is uh, the move from a somewhat predictable sist- uh, situation where in the past, you'd get rains, you'd get storms, you'd get wet periods uh, in the upper Midwest here. But uh, they would be, in my experience, fairly quickly followed by big sweeping Canadian high pressure, north winds, uh, things that would come in and dry things down rapidly after rain events. This makes it difficult, but very survivable for what we do in vegetables. What we've seen in the last 20, 25 years is the rise of these persistent wet spells and it cuts into yields and it makes what we do so, so, so much less predictable and less sustainable, frankly. This is is what I I do for a living. And I can tell you, it's wetter and it costs us a lot more now than it did even 10, 12 years ago. So, uh, that agriculturally, that's the big one right there. Uh, And then finding the right soils uh, and the right fields to farm uh, that allow a person like me or any small farmer, anyone who's really tied to this, uh, to to, uh, crop health based on succession plantings that we have in, in fresh market produce. Uh, finding the right fields where that can really work. That's another challenge because um, we tend to be, at least in our area of Southeast Minnesota, focused on um, uh, developing lands that I consider to be really valuable agricultural lands. That's another big challenge we deal with. So anyway, there's bucket number one, the agricultural challenges. Second thing is the challenge of, you know, again, of, of running a business in rural America, which is very related to labor. And uh, related to this ideal that I've got of really trying to elevate this as not just something that someone does because they don't have other choices, but elevating it to a level of what someone might choose to do, um, given many other options, producing food, hands-on, in the field, working outdoors, rural America, um, and, um, and, and, and making a living doing this without taking a vow of poverty. Finding a way to to be profitable enough as a business, you know, on a five-year average that can attract and keep really good employees here that would choose to do this um, over a lifetime uh, to, to to build an industry, not just at our farm, but obviously hopefully to make uh you know to build an, an industry that is replicable, so there would be more Featherstone farms uh, and other producers like this that can provide more produce to more uh, co-ops and, and other uh, outlets uh, markets in, in, in more populated areas, growing that in a way that that is um, uh, uh, sustainable, big challenge. And um, we've been reasonably successful at it, but we've got a long way to go. A uh, big part of it is uh, who's going to do the hand labor and how do we do this equitably, largely with an immigrant uh, population here. That's been another big uh, uh, source of a, lot of, a lot of my work and advocacy over the years is with uh, Spanish speakers who frankly do 90% of the uh, work of, of um, growing, harvesting, packaging, uh, and preparing food for us in all industries from uh, agriculture, meat packing, restaurants. So much of it uh, is, is done by Spanish speakers. And uh, so that's a, another big challenge doing that fairly and equitably. Third big challenge, as I mentioned, is, is having enough access to enough markets, enough people who will pay a fair price. And you can see, again, how this is uh, tied back into the other uh, two in such an important way. I, in my estimation, anyway, my from my vantage point on the farm, anyway, the thing that makes um, our business work, that makes the wedge co-op work, that makes co-op partners work, is that we are in, a, in an area in which there is a critical number of people who value what we do enough to pay a premium price for it. And they're not constantly going back and checking penny for penny what uh, Carrot produced at Featherstone Farm, sold at the Linden Hills Co-op or Wedge Co-op, what that pound for pound price is compared with what it might show up at a national or international retailer. Because if if, uh, if consumers are taught that that's what really, that the value of, of the carrot is reflected in that price tag on the shop, then we, we will lose every time. Featherstone Farm, the co-ops, the environment, the farm worker, these things that we think are so important, we'll lose every time. There has to be a larger value placed on these things. And um, that's what I think your challenge, Josh, you just talked about differentiating, understand, really educating people to understand that, um, that there is something larger value in, in something produced and uh, distributed through a locally owned, locally controlled system where the dollars stay in the community. That is a really uh, a shared vision, a shared uh, job that we've got of, of, of helping people understand this. We can choose a, a, a low value, low ball, cheap food system. Uh, we've done that for many generations in this country. Uh, how do you go about uh, choosing something different? Um, we're lucky enough to have a, a core group of people in the Twin Cities that, 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 that help uh, lay that foundation upon which we can build, hopefully something that's uh, even more accessible, more broadly available and uh, broadly accepted in the community. But that's a big, big challenge, just like Josh said.
2: And just building, Jack, on what you said, you know, I think on one level, it's about the taste and kind of tasting the difference. And you know, being willing to pay a little bit of a premium for that better quality product But I think there's also a certain element of how do you support your values and kind of putting your money where your mouth is. And, you know, it might be that the grocery bill is $5 higher, but, you know, is it supporting fair wages? Is it supporting, you know, a more sustainable agricultural system? Is it reinvesting in my community? And and asking those things as well so that you can do an evaluation. And again, we're not going to win if we're double the price of other retailers we need to be competitive but we also need to get people to understand fully what they're buying when they are when they are coming and shopping at our stores
1: yeah what an awesome discussion it's interconnected both of the the challenges of growing this food and then also you know providing it to a customer Um, It's sort of the tension between like affordability and paying for the real cost of food so that it is grown in a way that's not extractive uh, of a community of people and of the land. Is it possible, do you think, to feed everyone with this system? I think that there's obviously an issue for some people of, yeah, maybe $5 more on a grocery bill, probably more than that if you're buying, it depends on what you're buying, but um, isn't really attainable for everyone right now. Is there a future for our food system? that is more inclusive where more people can support co-ops and organic producers small local producers because obviously there's a big market for the cheap food and falsely cheap but is there a future where we really do get most if not all of our food locally or grown in a resilient um, sustainable fashion is that something that you guys kind of can imagine happening or is there a pathway that you can see and how maybe do you guys fit in to that pathway? It's a big question, so (laughs) feel free to parse it however you like.
2: I will just answer on the affordability piece, um, you know, and and then we can kind of get to the scalability. But on the affordability, we do talk a lot about that, and I remember actually being in a meeting um, where we were talking to a lot of our owners and kind of getting feedback from them. This was probably six or seven years ago, and GMOs were a hot topic. And this one woman banged her fist on the table and she said, you know, you're an embarrassment. You should be hundred percent organic. And I can't believe that not everything you sell in your store is organic. You know, you're a co-op and we, you know, we're probably about 45% organic, but um, which is a lot higher than almost any other food retailer. But we do, you know, and then the, the in response, this, this other woman kind of in the back kind of, you know, shyly raised her hand and said, you know, look, I am on a fixed income. I don't make very much money. I believe investing, you know, and I, and buying good quality food, but I can't afford all organic. And the nice thing about shopping at the co-op is that there is a range of options. And I, you know, I remember there was a very formative moment for me. And you know, we we actually kind of from that created something called the co-op affordability project, which was if you are on one of like six or seven different government assistance programs, and can kind of prove, um, you know, low income household, then you can you can sign up the co-op for a lot, a lot cheaper ownership fee. And then you get 10% off your groceries every day. I also think we, you know, in almost every single category, really try to provide a range of options. And with a lot of our basics, our co-op basics, which we have in almost every kind of staple category, we kind of benchmark against what, not, not what's kind of, you know, the highest price retailers, but what are the value retailers doing and how are we really close to that in terms of Providing price and value on those items, so um, I, I do think, you know, well, we're not necessarily going to pe- compete on every single item in the store dollar for dollar. We do really believe that affordability and accessibility is extremely important, and that is one of our values.
1: Awesome! I had no idea about that program. i It's so cool that that exists. So sorry, that was my one interruption. Go ahead.
2: Yeah, no, it's not an interruption at all. Yeah, we it was it's it's awesome. We had probably in the first couple of years, like over a thousand people sign up for co-op ownership um, through the co-op affordability project. So it was a great way to bring, you know, the co-op and those values and and high quality food to award shopping at the co-ops uh, before. So.
1: Yeah, I think that's great that you guys are addressing some of those affordability issues at a, a store level. And it makes me think of how farmers markets here in the twin cities have started accepting EBT. And that's definitely something I hope to see in other places and, that there's potentially like a national or system-wide level um, change to address affordability. I mean, there are plenty of ways the cost of conventionally raised food is made more affordable. And as Jack mentioned previously, things on the farming side, like diesel subsidies, for example. And I think that is my next piece of the question for Jack. And I'm sure you've already had some thoughts, but is it going to be possible for us to shift the system at a massive scale and still provide and grow enough affordable food? Do we have to grow lettuce in the desert or huge swaths of monocrops? Is that going to be a piece that has to exist, um, or can we really grow all of our food for Minnesotans within the region? Is this something that can only be achievable for a relatively small percentage of people that are willing to pay higher prices for organic, sustainable, and local food?
0: Sure, I think Josh has got a much greater sense on a larger scale about food systems and uh, and uh, uh, whether or not this uh, the the or, uh, feeding. Uh, providing and, 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 and fe- feeding people organic food on a very large system, global level is, uh, is affordable, achievable, whatever. My experience is all within this just very narrow world of fresh market vegetables, okay? So that's the very first part of it. Um, and my, and, and uh, my thinking on this honestly has evolved a lot over the years and uh, it's evolved towards, uh, unfortunately, a position of more skepticism and doubt uh, because uh, particularly with disrupted climate, uh, I no longer believe honestly that we're going to be able to produce um, the type of uh, uh, fresh market vegetable crops um, consistently in the way that the American public wants um, at a price point that the American public is used to um, in a more um, regional or Uh, organic way. Uh, There is simply no way that what we do, that no matter how quickly we scale or uh, reach uh, economies of scale or shift systems or invest in regional or quit subsidizing California, whatever, there is the the weather factor alone. In the world of fresh market vegetables, the weather factor alone means that we will never be able to produce um, fresh market salads, lettuce, uh, broccoli, tomatoes, melons, as efficiently or as predictably in a four-season climate like Minnesota or Georgia or Oklahoma or Maine or uh, Texas, we will not be able to produce those cro- crops in these areas as affordably or as predictably as they do in the arid West. I'm just no—I don't think that is possible. I think that uh, what we see therefore is a, uh, a, a situation of artificially cheap uh, produce coming out of the arid west that is um, affordable only because of uh, sufficient irrigation water out west. And a series of price supports for diesel fuel and other things that, uh, that, that go back a long time in American food history and food policy. But uh, honestly, even if uh, if we decided that uh, that even if we decided that everyone was going to pay twice as much for re- local carrots or local broccoli, I don't believe that we would be able to produce those crops as predictably as the market requires, because uh, it's not just the affordability and the cost point, but it is the, our ability. For example to produce uh, consistently enough broccoli over a 10 week period that in our, during the best part of our broccoli season from middle of August to early October, middle of October, um, it's really hard consistently, the number of boxes that co-op partners in the wedge and, and uh, Linden Hills want week in and week out because of these fluctuations of weather and cold fronts and hot, warm cold fronts and warm fronts and rain and dry and, and, and these swings. I just don't know, you know, I I think the the big change that would have to be required in order for this really to take off would be not merely the willingness to pay more for produce, but the willingness to accept gaps on the shelves at certain times. And this is where, again, co-op partners and food co-ops have been so um, supportive of us over the years, and I think they really get this, that, uh, that, that we just cannot, you know, short of growing all the tomatoes in a greenhouse tunnel, which creates a small uh, Yolo County, California here, Central Valley, California, right under, under a plastic tunnel in our field. Short of that, we're just not going to be able to guarantee 500 boxes of broccoli a week for a, a regional warehouse like Co-op Partners. It's just too volatile. It's too volatile. No matter what price point is, um, you know, we could probably produce the, the, hit those windows eight times out of 10. And, and maybe if there were a dozen other farms from... Uh, St. Louis to Winnipeg that were also producing broccoli, uh, you know, they could fill in the gaps. We might be able to cobble together a system that could meet that kind of demand as consistently as you would need uh, to really uh, substitute and grow and, and and build a different food system. But I am really doubtful. Um, it would really take a level of coordination and vision and support from the general public that I'm just not certain is there. I hate to be skeptical, but
2: uh, yeah, no, I, I, I agree with you, Jack, and I think there definitely is, you know, you kind of talk about public or customer acceptance of gaps. I think there's also customer acceptance of imperfect produce. And I think that's kind of coming around. I think we've been trained to look for a certain type of strawberry, a certain look, a certain look for broccoli. And I, I think I would say a lot of our customers maybe have an understanding that, you know, you can't judge a piece of fruit or vegetable by its cover. And you know, to kind of celebrate and use more of the imperfect looking stuff. I think that that's a change in consumer mindset. Um, Do I think we can fully, you know, get every person fed by a system of featherstone farms kind of spread across the country? I, I don't think we're there, but I think we can make incremental change. And I think we have, I mean, if you look just at organic food production over the past 10 or 20 years, the growth has been exponential. And again, you know, while I was touting that not all organic food is grown the same and that's different, you know, the way Jack is growing it versus these huge organic farms in California, it still is a better system than maybe what the old system was or the conventional system. And so I think we have really moved the dial and improved the quality of the food system and be able to scale up pretty considerably pretty quickly with organics um, over, the, over the past 10 or 20 years. So, you know, it might not be enough to feed everybody. It might not be enough to impact the whole food system. But I think you can make changes. And I, I think another thing. And again, I'm not an expert on this topic, but I do believe that our um, agricultural incentives in you know government funding has really gone to big agriculture and has supported uh, monoculture, just large scale agriculture. And I think. If we were to be able to scale up with more more farms like Jack's, you know, how are we reinvesting in small farming communities in Minnesota and other places like that, um, where there are more challenges? And I, I think you know that 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 whole system is is pretty broken as well. And I think that would that would be another kind of fundamental thing that would need to change.
0: Yes. I- I don't mean to sound too skeptical. I think it, Josh is absolutely right. There has been enormous improvement. There's been enormous growth. Um, I, I think there is uh, still more room for growth and more room for broadening and, and uh, not just not growing a business like ours but replicating a business like ours. I think there is greater potential. I just think that, that uh, without some larger shift in the paradigm and uh, the thinking uh, among a lot of Americans there's going to be a glass ceiling uh, i uh, and uh, it's not we're not going to necessarily just continue the same rate of of uh, of growth that we've seen over the past couple of decades i just i it's not i used to think that we did and this is part of it it's just uh coming to terms in my own head that that uh that it's not going to be uh something as i thought 10 years ago that would just naturally take off and continue to be a self-fueling self-replicating thing that that would uh would would gradually get out of the uh, the world of the food co-ops to the uh, to the, the 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 rainbow foods and cub foods and eventually to the walmarts of the world i i used to think that would happen and now i'm not as confident but one can always hope
1: <laughs> yeah the keys to remain optimistic it sounds like what both of you guys are touching on um is that there needs to be some real education of consumers and we need to sort of have a mass kind of change in mindset in order to facilitate and like create a consumer base for a better food economy. I think that's a good lead into um, talking about what listeners can do to participate in in shaping that and supporting co-ops and local farmers. And it sounds like also supporting policy is an important part of this, um, shifting resources in order to make more Featherstone Farms possible and make, make Cub Foods more like co-op partners. So yeah, I think maybe that's a good way to close up is to have you guys talk about some suggestions you have for our listeners, um, how they can join a co-op or what it means to be a member of a co-op and what it is to be a CSA member and why that's important um, as well.
2: Yeah, great. I, I I want to kind of stress that with the education, I think it's also important for us to kind of meet people where they're at. I think we, we really have focused a lot in the last few years about being more open, more accessible, and really welcoming in kind of a wider group of people and, and really just, you know, exposing them to the real positives and pleasures of, of really kind of healthier um, eating and, and kind of the, the benefits of supporting local community food system. Um, in terms of, you know, how people can, you know, support the system and, and with co-ops, you know, I, I said this earlier, but I, I really do believe you vote with your dollars. And so the single best thing people can do is to make you know, conscious choices. And again, people have different uh, budgets and different amounts that they can afford. But I, I think kind of, again, we're, we're here, we've got a bunch of different options. And, you know, I will say kind of our, you know, self grind peanut butter is probably cheaper than what you would get at Walmart. And so there are things that are very affordable that are really high quality. And And so I think kind of making some of those conscious decisions to support local businesses and having that money stay in the community and support fair wages not just for our workers but for everybody through the food system is a big deal for you know co-ops kind of co-op 101 you don't need to be a member to shop at the co-op so i think there's a perception that uh, you know i don't know if, they, if i can shop there i don't know if i want to become a member we're open to anybody and you know anybody can kind of come in and try it out and you could shop here for 30 years and never become a member. Now, becoming a member is, is pretty easy, and you know you can get signed up in less than five minutes. It's eighty dollars. It's a one-time investment. It's not an annual fee. You've got in one you know one share ownership stake in the business. And if you decide in six months, you know, hey, I don't want to be an owner anymore. Or you decide in 30 years, you don't want to be an owner anymore. You come back, we give you your eighty dollars back. And so we're just holding that share. We're holding your eighty dollars. So it's kind of a no-brainer in terms of um, the value. You get a lot of savings. As an owner, you get kind of a say in the business and you're supporting a local food economy.
0: When I think about uh, the evolution that I'd like to see for uh, the food system, and I'll just reflect that in in evolution in my own thinking over all the years. And uh, one in particular, this question of affordability and accessibility. We were catering to a certain narrow section of the population, and it was very important to me to diversify, to broaden that out. And when I did that, I found myself apologizing for the cost of our produce right away. And for the first 10, 12 years of my own career here farming at Featherstone Farm, I apologized for this high cost. I felt as though I had to explain this and justify it in some way. And it was one of my goals as a farmer to try to scale up our farm to reach some kind of uh, economies of scale to where we could eventually bring the costs down. To me, that was an active goal. Well, somewhere along the way, um, my thinking began to shift and uh, to reflect different values, different uh, goals in some ways. And now I am completely unapologetic about the high cost of what we grow. And so now I am, again, unapologetic about what we charge for food because I am really clear on the values that that high price supports. And so, um, again, I, I would like to think that our CSA members or uh, members of Wedge Co-op or people that buy our produce elsewhere can say uh, can take, take home a bag of Featherstone carrots that are significantly more expensive than organic carrots, even from California, organic carrots from California, and say, wow, did I get a good deal on carrots today? I paid more for these carrots, but what, here's what I invested in. It's not merely that they're more Uh, uh, that they're tastier or fresher or better eating or whatever. But I also really invested in things that are important to uh, the environment and to food systems and to people in this home state. And I'm really supporting an alternative to uh, this industrial food system that honestly has delivered over the course of many generations, I think, relatively poor value long term to um, consumers and producers alike. So uh, I, I'm unapologetic about that, and I'd sure like to think that uh, that over time, as people can afford it, as people understand these things, are going to consider a good value on carrots to be a buck fifty or two bucks a pound, not 19 cents a pound.
1: Awesome. Thank you. I think those are such good points about finding value apart from finding value in what you're, you're buying and the food that you're producing and the place that you're buying your food at um, and, and using you know, your dollar to sort of and vote with it, really. And I think that kind of leads me into um, something that MN350 is working on, which is supporting a piece of legislation called the Headwaters Community Food and Water Bill, which would provide funding and infrastructure for resilient, regenerative and inclusive food economies here in Minnesota. I'm not sure, have either of you guys heard of this, so we don't need to necessarily dig into it, but um, have either of you heard of it?
0: No, absolutely. I'm not familiar with the specifics as much. I've I've, I've unfortunately had to backpedal off of a lot of the advocacy engagement on things the last few years that I I was in before. So I don't know a lot about the specifics, but the general goals and the idea of taking these things on um, with a a broad agenda like this, I think is just a really fabulous uh, idea, putting climate and putting uh, the environment at the forefront could not be more important in my mind. One other thing I might throw out too, Josh, I'll let you comment. But one other thing too, I think is really important. You know, when we think about uh, you know, the cost of climate action as a broad society, I think we're starting to recognize right now that, that the cost of inaction is ultimately much, much greater than the cost of action. Uh, to me, this is the the, the same thing with the, the cost of food, organic and, and regional local food. Uh, the the in, integrating these values and ultimately is going to be less expensive very long term than continue to rely on a model that is, to, to my mind, doomed to collapse with uh, fossil fuels, dr- these droughts and, and climate change in the American West. The system that we have is not going to sustain itself midterm, long term here. And, uh, and the cost of, of not moving in these directions, not supporting alternatives, ultimately, going to be a lot higher than the cost of, of, uh, of paying more for carrots right now from us or for buying from a locally controlled, locally uh, principled business like um, Wedge Co-op.
2: I, you know, I just would add to what Jack was saying that I, I do think it, it's taken a long time, but it feels like climate change and the seriousness of it is, is, is really becoming a much more mainstream issue and just is getting wider recognition. And, you know, just even as you could see kind of in the last election, I mean, I think it was, it was talked about a lot more and younger generation is coming up and they, they really see this, you know, at the top of the most important issues. I, I'm just, I'm, I'm very, very nervous about what the future holds, but I'm also encouraged that there is finally um, a little bit greater focus on this and greater commitment to the things that are going to kind of hopefully positively impact climate change in the future.
1: Yeah, I agree. I'm so glad that climate change has become much more of a mainstream issue and more and more people are trying to find out ways that they can take action in their own lives. And so I would encourage them, our listeners, to go to mn350.org headwaters to learn more about that legislation and how they can support it, as well as visit uh, Featherstone Farms website and check out their CSA program, or go to your local co-ops uh, like Linden Hills and Wedge um, and visit those and support those. So thank you again, uh, Jack Hadeen from Featherstone Farm and Josh Resnick, the CEO of Twin Cities Co-op Partners for joining us today. We really appreciate it.
2: Well, thank you. This is, this is always the fun part of the job and I always uh, value the time I get with Jack. I always learn so much from him. So this was a great experience for me to get to, get to listen and, and just be part of the conversation. So
0: thanks for, for including me. You're, you're doing so much. I mean, co Partners, again, I just cannot say it enough not just the food co-ops themselves, but co-op partners warehouse and the and the uh, regional uh, impact that a business like this has is really, really unique and uh, important in our uh, part of the world. Thank you. Perfect, thanks for your work on this.
1: And finally, I'd like to just thank our listeners for tuning in and until next time, I'm Eli Crane and this has been Nourished by MN350. Nourished by MN350 is a production of MN350 Food Systems Team. We are changing the way people think about food production, distribution, and consumption practices in the context of rapidly changing climate. This series is made possible by the hard work and passion of a group of dedicated volunteers. Our executive producer is Sarah Riedel. This episode was written by Eli Crane. The sound editor for this episode was me, Eli Crane, and our logo was designed by Fizz Design Collective, and the music is by Ecuador Monta. You can learn more at mn350action.org slash podcasts.